Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Good day and welcome to another amazing episode of Logistics with Purpose. I'm here with Christy, as always, my fearless co-host. Christy, how are you doing? We have a great show today. We do have a great show today, a long time coming show as well. So it's good to be back here with you. We, I feel like it's more sporadic now when you and I lead together, but it's fun to be back in the swing of, of the original co-hosts. It's great to have you here. And of course, today we have a really, really good guest. And as you mentioned, we've been actually trying to chase her down for years and years. So we finally, finally got her to to do this for us. So we're excited about that. Christy, I guess without further ado, why don't you just introduce us to our guest? Yes. Um, today's guest is a busy woman. So we're finally glad to get some time with her. She's been doing some incredible things around the world, which we can't wait to tell you about. Um, without further ado, we have Christelle Delenclo. Director of Growth Enablement, Aid, and Relief at Maersk Project Logistics. Yes, that Maersk. So we have a, a little bit of a celebrity with us. So Christelle, it's always good to see you and talk to you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I wouldn't talk about being a celebrity, but I appreciate you being so persistent. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me today. I'm delighted, actually, to see you both. It's amazing to have you here. And thank you once again. I've known your career and I've known some of the things you've done. And it's incredible to have the opportunity to share them with our audience. And I'm sure that's going to be a fantastic show. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I guess to start us off, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? When Where did you grow up? How was your childhood like? Sure. So I'm the oldest of uh, four siblings. Uh, I grew up in France near Paris. Um, I I think I was genuinely a joyful and empathetic little girl, <laughs> very curious about the world um, and others. And I think this naturally attracted people towards my, my circle and always making sure that I was not leaving anyone behind. Wow. That really lends to the fact, I think, for that sets up my question well. So what is the story? So first of all, how is, do you miss Paris? Do you get back there very often? I've only been there once. I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> no, France is a beautiful country, but now I'm, I have dual citizenship. I'm, I'm French and American. I'm very, very proud of that. I actually found home in America after many years across the world in different countries. And this is where I feel at home. So yeah, very happy about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you talked about being empathetic. You talked about not leaving anyone behind. So that gives me a good sense of just how you got to where you are. But I'll ask you a little more specifically, too. Is there a story from your childhood, from those early years that sh specifically shaped who you are and what you're doing now? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, probably many events. I have a very, I had a very formative childhood during my years in the French national team in athletics. So, you know, that took me to many different places at an early age. But I would think that the pivotal moment was in Guatemala during my very first teaching experience. I mean, 
It was more conversations with wealthy family and German families in Guatemala. It was my very first job. I was not even 20. And on my way to the embassy every day to get those classes, I would pass by a not-so-fortunate family. And one of the little girls, I used to get really attached to her. And so to cut a long story short, because it's it's a long story, but eventually what happened is the embassy ended up (laughs) helping me out and sponsored the construction of a school so that the kids didn't have to go from the down to the city. And so this to me, I still have pictures of that and of that little girls. I mean, honestly, if I had been a more mature adult, I would have probably, you know, done even more than that. But at the time, it was a big deal for me. And what it reminds me every day when I think about that story, which was a very marking point in my life, was that, um, you know, the smallest act of kindness and really has a profound and far-reaching impact that sometimes you don't realize. You just realize it way later. And the relief effort not only provided immediate aid to the kids that didn't have to work so much, like I mentioned, but also it also fostered a sense of solidarity amongst all these people that were involved, both from the families itself, um, the German families that were expatriated in Guatemala and working through the embassy, but also the other villagers, you know, everyone was into it. And I saw really the power of unity at that very moment. That's amazing. Uh, Yeah. Incredible. And hey, uh, of course, it requires someone uh, like you to kind of push through something like that and of course make it happen, which is great. Where do you get this from? I mean, I know that you kind of walked past this little girl and of course there's everyone has emotions, but Do you attribute your kind of caring and kind of giving back nature to someone, maybe? I don't know. I think it just comes from an early age. It's who you are inherently. I don't know. There was always this thing about making sure that people are safe and happy and whether you have the means to actually do everything. But sometimes it's just a small act of kindness. For me, it was every day just speaking with her and making sure that I would bring something or understanding what they were doing. But they were so close. The the school was really nearby the embassy. So to me, it just made, but why are you walking so much? Like, why are you not? It was just about being curious and interested in the life of others. And I think that helps a lot in shaping who you are. Absolutely. And it's something so powerful, right? At the end of the day, it's not something difficult to do, but just caring for others, people that you pass on the street, just being open, talking to them. That's amazing and a great story. She had the most incredible smile on her face every single day. That will stay in my mind until I die. She was just, and I wonder what she is, what she has become today. I hope she did something wonderful, but she was such a beautiful little girl, really. Well, thanks for sharing. How long were you able to see that? I'm sorry? How long were you there and able to see that happen? It took almost a year and a half, I would say 14 months. Wow. Yeah. I'll send you a picture. I I still have that picture on my phone. Oh, yeah. That that would be great. It's my little reminder sometimes on what, you know, when you go through high and lows, you remember that story and you get to see the picture and you're like, you know, I hope she's doing good. Wow. That's a great story. And yes, please, by all means, share that I picture will. with us. We would love to, we'll we'll love to see it. recognize <laughs> me. 
have long hair, brown hair. <laughs> <laughs> so you started your professional career at La Sorbonne, right? And you actually have a degree in English literature. So why English literature and um, why La Sorbonne, I guess? Well, um, well, first of all, I was not very good at math to begin with. I didn't get the <laughs> yeah. right teacher. But no, I mean, in all seriousness, I wanted to be a war journalist. And in France, to become wow. a journalist, you needed to have a degree in languages or in French or wh whatever it was that was related to writing stories and all these things. So I really wanted to do that. And it was a natural path before entering the school of journalism. The thing is, life decided otherwise, and I, <laughs> the universe redirected me to something completely different, but which I think now, looking back today, was totally on purpose, and I'm very happy about that, yeah. And we'll definitely get into, like, well, then why did you end up doing logistics? But before we do that, which is a really nice kind of bridge to our next part of the interview, is like, you mentioned you wanted to be a war journalist. Did I get you right there? Yeah, I wanted what? to cover the difficult zone. I wanted to travel. Wow. I thought it was exciting. That was the adrenaline. I wanted to help people to see how we could cover their stories so the world would know and people could do something to help. So that was my that was my thing. <laughs> but wow, that's pretty brave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't, you know, end up doing that. I ended up doing something different. But I think literature had a lot to do in also what I'm doing today. I, I find that and I'm, I know you do a lot of writing and reading as well, Enrique, but I mean, literature has such a diverse range of narratives and perspectives. It, it really is all about understanding the human condition. It, it's really invaluable when it comes to humanitarian logistics, where effective leadership requires the sensitivity to the needs and experiences to help those affected by those crises. So I think literature has opened up so much more insight about society and, and cultures and historical periods as well, which we should all learn uh, from at some point to really understand and consider the, the challenges that we face, right? And or that any individual or community face. So it, it really helps developing critical thinking and it helps navigating some really challenging dilemmas. Wow. And it's also about storytelling, right? <laughs> well, it's all about storytelling, which you're pretty good at. And, and of course, yes, you're absolutely right. That kind of foundation has uh, clearly helped you develop in your professional career as well. Yeah, Go ahead, yeah. Christy. You had a question for Christy. Well, I do. And that's, I also want to point out, that's a really beautiful way to tie literature and love of reading and learning to just everyday skills and critical thinking so thank you for pointing that out. That's a really beautiful way to look at it. Well, before we jump into Mersk, you mentioned one of your, or you mentioned your first job, but what were some of those other jobs leading up to Mersk? How did they help shape your, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's kind of hindsight is 2020, right? So everything you're saying, I'm like, well, of course she ended up doing what she's doing now. But of course, when you're living it, it's completely different. So tell us a little bit about some of those early professional experiences and how they shaped your approach to business growth, to humanitarian logistics, and kind of put, helped continue to put you on that path. 
Yeah, well, I like you say, when you're living it, you don't necessarily see the meaning of it. <laughs> right. But that now, at, at the age we are, I am at least, I think there's a lot to say going from an early start in a public sector as, a, as an English teacher, which I became after that, after what the Guatemala experience, to the private sector. And what I like to think I am now a more seasoned logistician, I, I would say that it's also about... In, in this experience, it's about the people you meet, right? And and I like to say, to tell about my professional journey based on, on those absolutely incredible encounters because they transform your life. And my life has been radically changed. Uh, the day I met the founder of CMACGM, Jack Erosade, who no longer is with us, unfortunately, but that those years for me were such a determining factor in understanding logistics and the vital role of logistics in the world, not just humanitarian logistics as we talk today, but overall, everything that we do in logistics is absolutely crucial and the world depends on it, right? So was it tough? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it was. Right. Was, it, was it a zillion time? Yes. I mean, the the one thing that I'd really like to take this opportunity to say is that sometimes when you have such a rich professional journey, you also need to look at critically trying to understand how did I get there? You know, did I do the right thing? And, and how do I respond to young women that come to me and say, hey, what's my next step? What should I be doing? You know, and to me, there's only one response to that is, Take, don't be afraid to take chances. Unleash the power of retreat. I know it sounds weird, but you, you have to embrace the art of taking two steps back to propel forward with big speeds, right? Because, you know, when you go as a, you're an English teacher, you think, oh, this is going to be my life now, et cetera. And then you realize that your purpose, inner purpose is not aligned with what you should be doing. And then and you take chances. You're like, okay, well, I don't have the qualification, but I'll enter the public sector, the private sector and see what happens. And then you meet those people and then they trust you. And then you learn, you, you're willing to learn. You step back a little bit because, you know, you have to learn again. <laughs> but it's okay because, because then you, you get to achieve so many wonderful things. And for that, I will always be grateful. It's a great point. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, not a lot of people kind of like acknowledge the fact that it's okay to take a couple of steps back, right? I mean, we're all maybe in particular be very proponent of pushing forward, pushing forward, uh, yeah. pushing forward. And and I think what you say makes perfect sense, right? I mean, be brave enough to take chances, but then also be even braver sometimes to just, I think you mentioned embrace retreat, which uh, yeah. you're very eloquent when it comes to the English <laughs> English language, by the way. But yeah, embrace retreat, couple of steps back can only help sometimes, right? Give you perspective. Yes, it really does. And it doesn't, you get to learn a lot about it as well in your day-to-day -day job. So the bridge between you, the teacher and logistics was CMA, CGM, right? So you tell us a little bit more. So you started, I guess you took the chance and you started with them. Yeah, there was a few other things before I worked for a biochemistry and diagnostic company, which also shaped a lot of really interesting experiences and started my year, my years as a, an expat, you would say, because I went to live in London. But yeah, CMA has been my, my biggest years of wonders because there was so much to learn. 
And I was, I really was the the mentor of all. <laughs> right. I mean, how very fortunate was I, right? And then I, I got to many different opportunities that were that came my way and which I seize in traveling into different countries as well for CMA. And I learned many different things from uh, trade management. Obviously, there was always a little bit of humanitarian involved, as you can imagine. I was also at the heart of the old Delmas for the Africa expertise, which is, as you know, Africa is very dear to my heart. And also agency management uh, in New Caledonia it was one of my most favorite position and all my colleagues, if they, all previous colleagues, if they hear that, they'll know we, we had a wonderful time, uh, building this agency. So that was phenomenal. But yes, but then at the same time, all those rich years conduct you to get new opportunities. And this is what right. happened when jump chips with Maersk. It was phenomenal because for me, Maersk was like the top. <laughs> you well, they are the top, there, right? right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so that was amazing. And I was very happy to do that because you get to learn so much about individuals that are shipped differently, that are trained differently, that use different systems and that have a different approach. And that what makes, I like to think, my experience also quite unique. Well, and well, that's great segue because the next question was kind of diving a little bit more into what you do now and in Maersk in particular. So for everyone out there, of course, supply chain people that listen to our show, they know who Maersk is. At least they all have a sense of what Maersk is because it's been around since 1904, I believe. And of course, we're very proud at Vector to col collaborate with Maersk because they have a very purpose-driven organization. They have done amazing things throughout history, I would say, right? Not only recently or, or since you uh, joined them, but throughout uh, many, many years. So if you can, in your perspective, tell us what you love the most. And you started saying a few things about Maersk, but tell us a little bit more about who's Maersk for you. I mean, can you, for people that don't know exactly what they are? Well, some would say Maersk is a gorilla because it's big <laughs> and strong and solid and robust. To me, it's a very unique company that has strong values. And that's what also made it my choice to join at the time. They care about you as an individual. They care about the, the world we live in. And that makes, that is very important. They think ahead. They innovate. They inspire. I mean, you know, sustainability matters in everything we do. I mean, we just welcomed the world's very first container vessel sailing on green methanol. I mean, that was historical, literally. And that's a big pride for all of us, especially when you work in humanitarian, you're like, wow, this is awesome. This is really part of the change we're looking for. And today we have also been informed that the CMACGM actually is joining forces with Maersk in an alliance to, to go further and faster in decarbonizing our industry. This is really exciting. That's why I get you know all my words at the same time. But to, to me, I think it's very important. And that's what Maersk is about, is really about the, the world we live in. I, I like that very much. So in the day-to-day work that I do. It's very diverse. I mean, 
Somebody said, well, for sure, in logistics, it's never boring. And I don't know. Right. It never is. No. Yes. Anyone that works in logistics would agree with that statement. It's about planning and coordinating. Uh, This is really key. But we oversee the entire supply chain to ensure the availability of essential supplies and resources uh, needed for the community's need. But we, it really ranges from transportation management, risk assessment, very important, because we develop contingency plans to mitigate challenges when it's needed. Compliance is very important, documentation, information management. But it's also about I would say about relationship management. And that's what I like with Maersk as well in, in the work that I do is they're very supportive of any new ideas or uh, initiative that you want to um, take forward. They're very, very supportive on that. And it's about continuous improvement, identifying the bottlenecks, understanding how do we improve processes? How do we look at a critical solution and how can we come up with the right and obviously cost-effective solution. So this is what I like the most about this is really bringing your perspective using previous experience. And this is so rewarding, extremely rewarding. Absolutely. Well, and you can obviously hear your passion in it anytime you get a chance to talk about it as well. How big is the team that you lead? So we have in MERS Project Logistics, we call it the Special Forces. <laughs> Special <laughs> Forces of MERS because we are very unconventional. I don't even know how many people we have. My team is, we're in the U.S., we're uh, a small group, we're 10, 12 in different sectors like government and aid and relief, renewable energies, et cetera. And then we have a really large team for the operation team in, in Houston, and they are the backbone on making sure that whatever we put forward as a solution is actually operating smoothly. They are, they are really, really fantastic. But the team now is run, the mass project logistic is actually really new this year in terms of organization and global organization. So we're very happy about that. It's a brand new product. So. That's fantastic. And it, it, that does also say a lot about Maersk as well. You talked about it being unconventional. Tell us more about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unconventional in the sense that we do things that people don't necessarily would think they can, we can do. So I would say anything that's overdimensional, things that go to a conflict zone, things that require multiple stakeholders and coordination, things that are really, I mean, I was in Jacksonville not so long ago to, to look for a, a huge piece of a, of a plant that was so incredible on people really calculating to the millimeter that this would fit where it needed to fit. Those are, I mean, it takes preparation and it takes cleverness and expertise, obviously, but these make me really proud when I see the team succeed in that. We have, I mean, this team in, in MPL has such a global expertise. There's so much experience in there. It's, it's, you feel tiny sometimes (laughs) because they're really, really impressive. So. Well, for sure, one of the best teams out there, right? I mean, that's why Maersk is a leader in many different categories. And your team in particular, and the part of Maersk that it's aiding people throughout all kinds of disasters and emergencies, it's also very impressive, as you mentioned. So 
Well, could you give us a couple of examples, maybe a couple of the most kind of important projects that, that meant something to you and how your team kind of provided that very key support yeah. to those people in need? Gosh, there, there would be quite a few. I think the one that probably marked me the most was, and maybe because that's when we had a, a moment after the explosion of the port in Beirut, when we delivered winter jackets to children right before the winter. And it, we did that in such a record time. And the team worked beyond ours because of time difference, you know, in the US and all that. And they've done such an incredible work. And I will never forget that because really the operation team has gone above and beyond in doing that. And we had 11 containers that needed to be delivered. And the, I know it doesn't sound much, but when you receive a message from, from the receivers and tell you how much it meant to them to open up the containers and get those jackets for the kids, that was very special moment for the whole team. And Really, I think everybody still remembers that. It was kind of like a mini war room setup and making sure that we had everything from the procurement of the jacket all the way to the delivery uh, to the consignee. And that was really heartfelt. It was really special. The other thing I would say is probably Ukraine. At the moment, we do a lot of work for Ukraine. And we have a team in Ukraine that I speak to almost every day, I would say, and it's, they're incredible. And I admire their strengths and resistance to the situation and all the things that they do, no matter what, no matter the circumstances and the time and the alerts. And you're like, geez, and they are always there, always yes. there. Never an ignored message. They always respond. They're always there to give you the insight that you need. And that to me is really, really special. So I like to think that we do the right thing in the right place at the right time all the time. I think it's very important. That's terrific. Wow. Great example. Yeah. And Ukraine, uh, as you said, right? Amazing, very inspiring what they're doing there. And of course, what Maersk is helping is key to their survival, right? Like the jackets. And you pointed out earlier today that it's usually like the smaller things that make the bigger difference, right? So. Absolutely. Mercy moves thousands and thousands of containers. So 11, yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot, but those 11 containers, it's kind of like the small token that really makes the biggest difference. So thanks for sharing those stories. Yeah. Well, of course, as well as anyone, delivering humanitarian aid can be extremely challenging, to say the least, especially when you're reaching remote regions, conflict zones. One, another example that your team has participated in is when the earthquake hit Turkey, Earlier this year, your team collaborated with other foundations to transport aid. I'm curious, so we've mentioned a couple of really high-profile, challenging situations. What has your team learned, especially as you're doing unconventional things in unconventional places sometimes? Um, what are some of those lessons learned on how to get aid there or who to collaborate with? Or what are a couple of the takeaways that have meant the most to you and your team? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yes, this one was a very unique experience as well. I would say in this case that world clarity is essential, especially as you have many different stakeholders. You just don't show up on those things, right? You, you just don't show up. You, just, you have to make sure that the role of each and every participant or stakeholders is well-defined. If that is done, there's 
the operation will go fantastically well. If everyone comes in with the right attention, intention, the operation will go super smooth, no problem. The, when you have egos getting in the way of getting credit, <laughs> then that's when you, know, you have issues. In this particular case, didn't happen. Everybody was clear on what we had to deliver every step of the way. We took care of the air, just took care of the trucking. Everyone had a role well-defined and it was perfectly fine on understanding who was going to communicate about the whole thing. Every The whole thing went fantastically. And along the way, you get to meet quite unique individual. And that was very rich too. Wow. That's very powerful, right? And I think it's something that not everyone has identified as well. I guess everyone knows about this, but no one usually tells it the way it is. And it's the yeah. egos, right? You mentioned it very clearly. Yep. Everything can go well very quickly and we have smart people that can coordinate, but sometimes people are fighting over egos as opposed to kind of handing jackets to children. Yes, exactly. Wow. Isn't that mostly frustrating at some level, right? I mean, don't you feel like sometimes you want to just you're angry and frustrated and you could do more, but you can, they don't let you. That's what you're learning as well on the way you communicate with everyone. You learn patience and right. resilience in a few things. What matters is the end results. And then you figure it out. You do a postmortem and, and then you figure it out. But it's not the time to do it in the middle of the operation. So right. world right. clarity, number one, number one aspect. Well, well said. So. As we've seen with uh, global warming and other factors in the world right now, political and geographical and everything, I mean, sadly, there's been a lot more emergencies lately, right? There's been more natural disasters. And of course, the need for humanitarian aid is just increasing. How would you, as an expert in logistics and supply chain and someone that has gone through multiple disasters already, how would you like to see the supply chain and logistics continue to evolve to, to meet this kind of unfortunate growing need? This is a very important question, and certainly there, it, it, it cannot be answered in like two seconds, right? So I'll probably right. take a little longer if you allow me. <laughs> Please. Um, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I did mention that the, the world depends very much on the logistics. When it comes to humanitarian response, there is the supply chain, humanitarian supply chain is critical, the potential for innovation and technological advancement, hold, uh, it, it holds the key in to transforming how we respond to crisis, right? Address urgent needs and provide vital assistance to the most vulnerable. We can create a more efficient and agile, impactful humanitarian aid ecosystem by, in, in my opinion, by harnessing, and I, I choose my word very carefully, Harnessing the power of data analytics. And I know it may sound boring like that, but the reality is we need to be able to optimize allocation of resources, predict demand patterns, streamline distribution processes. MERSC is fully integrated and it makes a massive difference to have a single partner with greater visibility and, and, and control, because when you have a control tower to look at every step of the way of your supply chain, that's when you are a lot more in power of delivering, of impacting 
the delivery of the aid. And I think that's really something that I've been thinking about it on a number of different things when you talk to larger organization, when they ask for your advice or guidance, what do they need to take into consideration? Is it about the refugees, how to help them? How do we do that? How do we work with maybe climate experts in integrated in the control towers? Why not? I mean, there's so much that can be done, but those are the things that are going to be important, innovation and technological advancements. Then you have to establish robust network and, and fostering cooperation between humanitarian organizations, government, private sector entities, obviously, and local communities. It's only by sharing expertise and best practices that we can build a unified and coordinated response system that will go beyond borders. But you need to have that dialogue and that doesn't happen. It's still, I mean, it does happen, but not enough. Let's put it this way. Right. So we talked about embracing technology and collaboration. Of course, everybody would think, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. But there's another thing that needs to be, um, that needs to be considered is probably to prioritize capacity building and possibly local empowerment. By that, I mean investing in training so that it enhances the resilience and sustainability of humanitarian operation, but also fosters the self-reliance and of, of those communities to take an active right. role in their own recovery and development. And I mean, think of, I mean, you, you, you're a specialist in humanitarian logistics, right? You know all those phases. What happens when the humanitarian organization leaves, right? How do we right. empower right. the local community to take care of what's going to come next? And, and those are very important. And that's also some of the work that we've been doing with Ukraine. Lastly, I think that, and, and nobody can contradict me on that one because it's so obvious with what's happening. An emphasis on sustainability is, and resilience is paramount in shaping the future of humanitarian supply chain, uh, climate change, um, natural disasters, conflicts. Uh, all these pose significant challenges to humanitarian operations. Right. So we must adopt eco-friendly practices such as using renewable energies, resources, reducing waste and carbon emission, incorporating green transport solutions. You've seen all those things that Maersk has been doing. I was talking about the Laura Maersk a couple of days ago. But what, we, what's the name of the vessel again? It's Laura. It's Laura. Uh, nice. yeah, yeah, there's a whole history on, on, on that. And but there's also, you know, electric trucks. I don't know if you've seen those little mini electric like scooters and all that in, in, right. in India. We adjusted to the countries as well based on their needs, etc. I think there's, there's so much that can be said about those eco-friendly solutions. And in humanitarian logistics, that's going to be essential. I, 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 I believe that this will, if we are able to build resilient supply chains that can withstand the disruptions and adapt to changing circumstances, it will help the continuity of aid delivery, even in the face of unforeseen challenges. And God knows we have those. And this year we've had quite and, a lot. And we'll keep having them, unfortunately, right? It seems that yeah. unless we actually all work together and very well said, right? So to summarize the bullet points that you mentioned, so 
innovation and technology is key. Collaboration, right? Making sure everyone is involved, including the local communities and organizations. Prioritizing the capacity building, which is amazing. And you talked about training, training locals, making sure that they're self-reliance because they're not only going to be the first responders, but they will stay there after everyone else has left. And then at the end, of course, sustainability, which is, it's a big word, right? Everyone, I think, kind of uses it. But I feel like in certain parts, we're still behind. We're still behind. There's some regions in the world that might be a little bit farther down the curve and then some others that just truth be told, we just need to catch up. We need to catch up. But then when you look at the number of displaced people that keeps on growing year after year, you have to, you cannot use the word sustainability just like that. You you have to to be truthful to what it entitles. And it's a serious subject matter. Absolutely. I'd love to tie into your teaching background, your English background, what you just highlighted even amongst your team and amongst amongst the emergency and humanitarian disaster community as a whole, which is working with multiple stakeholders. You have to do that at a very high level at MERSC. You have to do that on a very individualized level at MERSC. So, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that in their own settings as well. Um, Communication is key. So, especially as you said, just in just so eloquently also in just having clarity and operational roles, who's going to be doing what that takes great communication. So I'm curious, what have you learned about fostering effective communication in your role, whether it's within your own team or with stakeholders around the world? So the same way Enrique was saying, sustainability is a big word. Communication is a big word too, right? And there's so much that can be said about that. Emotional intelligence is not something that we will ever stop learning. But if there's one, one, one thing that I can share is that different audiences need a different approach. You don't speak to the same people in the same way. And fostering effective communication, in my view, is about simplifying complex concepts. It's about having the ability to articulate your ideas in such a way that your partner can see the picture, like you painted that picture in their mind. And that that makes it so relevant to them that all of a sudden they're like, yeah. And then the other thing is also about obviously inspiring deeper connections, having the ability to rely on people because you can't do it alone. That's another lesson, obviously. But the other thing is also creating an atmosphere of trust. And, and once you have, that's really the lesson. Once you have that, I think most and foremost, you'll get the right attitude to deliver patience and persistence. Now, I have a story, <laughs> another one. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I have a, a little, a little something here. It's a little tattoo. It's usually a, a good break for people to say, to start a conversation. I don't get to see it. I, I, sometimes I don't even remember it, but you know, it, it comes and going, oh, what is this? And I like to explain the deeper meaning of that tattoo, which is basically a wave. It's nothing extraordinary, but it's persistence and resilience. It's about the high and lows of the tides that you've experienced in your life, throughout your life. And as a 
as a mother, as a worker, as a humanitarian, you go through so many different phases, but there's something that will never change is the strengths that you have within you to come back, like the tides, you know, like the wave. It, it's unbreakable. It'll always come back, back and forth. Persistence is the number one thing. My daughter has the same at the same place. And she says that it's important to her to know that it's something that inspires her move. Sometimes when she is feeling down, she knows that it's going to come back up again. So persistence and patience in effective communication, you'll see the results extremely well with the people that surround you. I think so. <laughs> That's my experience. That is probably the most simple tattoo with the most beautiful explanation I've ever seen. <laughs> Absolutely. So powerful. Yes, you can... <laughs> Definitely tell that you're, you must have been a really good teacher, by the way. I mean, I'm sure that if you wanted to go back and teach anything, you'll be more than capable of doing it. One of the things that we believe in, and of course, it's the title of our show here, is logistics with purpose, right? We're very passionate about giving back. We're passionate about highlighting people like you and organizations like MERS that are really, really making a change in the world and making a positive impact in our communities. So for you, I mean, what does kind of that phrase logistics with purpose mean? Yeah, and I appreciate everything you've done. I mean, obviously, we follow also the work that Victor has been doing through so many years. But the, so just so that, you know, in case you didn't know, the purpose statement of Maersk is to improve life for all by integrating the world. That's our purpose statement. It's a very powerful one uh, that all of us, every single employee of Maersk is really living by. Improving life for all by integrating the world. I take it obviously very personally with the humanitarian aid, but that also works at, on so many different levels of the supply chain, right? Basically, for me, logistic with purpose, it means the job is never done. We must persevere. The job is never done. It's never done. We have the power to reshape the way we deliver assistance and make a profound difference in the life of those who need it the most. And that's, again, the tattoo story. <laughs> that's, that's what it's about. Persistence, perseverance. It, those are very powerful words. And logistics with purpose is exactly that, is, is really ensuring that you do your absolute best to maintain that and continue and never, never give up because the job is never done. Beautifully said. Thank you. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was, it's taken us a long time to get here, but this was worth the wait. Thank you so much for your time um, with us today. As we wrap up, how can people connect with you specifically um, your division, are there needs or how can people reach out to you for humanitarian aid and assistance? How can they participate in those endeavors? Um, yeah, I mean, you have, we can share my email address. It's not a problem. I'm always happy to engage in uh, productive conversation, things that are thought-provocating dialogues. I'm very open to that. I, I think it's how we progress, all of us. And of course, if, if anyone has any question about MERSC, happy to answer them through the email address. Probably is probably the best, but feel free to connect anytime. Absolutely. And you are active on LinkedIn as well. Uh, very, very, very much. Yes. Perfect. Thank well, you. Chrissy, thank you so much. Great, great interview. I mean, do you 
I, there's plenty of notes that I was taking. Is there anything in particular that you feel kind of you're going to keep after this interview? Well, I guess going back to the just the clarity of roles, I think that's just so important. And then, yeah, I mean, as a, a communications person myself, all of that really spoke to me about just making sure everybody's clear, making sure they're engaged, involved, and understanding and on the same page as far as what goals need to be met and how they are active in pursuing those goals and making that to clear to all the stakeholders involved, whether they're inside or out. So I think that's a, a beautiful summary for me and, and certainly key to my role as well. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for joining me. And Christelle, thank you so much. Yes, we took us a little bit longer than I would have liked, but <laughs> as Christy said, Totally worth it, right? You guys are doing an amazing job. Merck is doing a great job and you're leading a really good team. So keep it up, as you said, right? The job's never done. The job's never done. So thank you so much. And for everyone that's listening to this podcast and everyone that's listening to this episodes of Logistics with Purpose, if you like kind of what you hear, if you like what you see, just don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much and have a good day. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for having me.